when I was a little kid, I remember that my uh, I went to the Carolinas, like Western North Carolina, because mm-hmm. um, my dad's family was from there, and my grandfather was speaking so quickly with such a thick southern accent mm-hmm. that I literally remember as like a five-year-old looking at my dad and going what did he say <laughs> <laughs> yep. so I get that feeling of like I actually speak this language but what did you say and the same thing happens with Spanish so similar I whenever I'd go down to the south of Spain because uh, my dad's side of the family we have property there uh-huh. that's over now yeah. but we had that for a while Interesting. Um, it was a recent sort of end okay um and they shut it down because nobody in my family gets along it's typical sort of let's ruin it instead of trying to get along yeah um but i remember going down and going around with my dad riding and going out with the cowboys and just they would talk to me and i would smile i'd turn my face to my dad and just be like can you translate because i understood none of that like and, help and me. you spoke the language yep yeah. and he would just repeat it for me but with the madrid accent right. and not the heavy southern accent right, right i was like oh okay yes hi it's nice to see you too right but i didn't understand a simple phrase because it was just so southern interesting i love language <laughs> you're listening to inside the aluminum tube this podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents often resulting in death if you're scared to fly proceed with caution Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree and went night night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. Welcome back to Inside the Aluminum Tube, which is the aviation history podcast. Together with my co-host, who is not an aviation expert, we look at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, and mere mishaps, along with the occasional conspiracy or mystery. Aviation history is worth remembering, so I am here to make sure we don't forget it. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator. If you want to see pictures of the events that we talk about and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram at AluminumTube. You can email me your ideas at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com or go to AluminumTubePodcast.com or ALTubePodcast.com where you can join my Patreon, tip me, get decals, meet the co-hosts, and listen to episodes. I'd love for each of my listeners, if you would please take a second to drop me a rating and review wherever you listen, and please tell a few friends because that's how podcasts grow. Today I'm back in sunny Southern California, Los Angeles, and I traveled all the way, like uh, in the previous episode with Inez, to record with her. She's a relatively new co-host. You know her from the previous episode that she's been on. We've been planning to do this for a while. Tell us about yourself or what has changed. And I think, did you tell us what brought you to L.A. last time? I think so, but I'll repeat myself. I don't mind. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) So I came to L.A. for work. Um, I work in the entertainment industry. More specifically, I work in podcasts. um, And it's been a really wonderful, welcoming industry to be a part of. And I'm 
excited to be here. We planned this before you were in podcasts. Yes, way so, before. Yeah, so that was just a bonus. Yes, and you've exactly. been on and and you've been on other podcasts and I haven't been on other podcasts. Oh, you haven't been on No, other. so the other podcast I was on just recently is just a trailer for one of our podcasts at the company. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you are going to be on um, the website. You'll be able to scroll down okay. and tap you and see a little bio and mm-hmm. see your picture and like any socials that you want to post like if you have a Patreon, if you have like a Instagram or anything I have like that, Instagram and that's, that's good. LinkedIn, but I'll that's post, not social media. I'll post media. all those up. <laughs> yeah. So you have listened to a few other episodes. Yes. Kind of covered our listener mail last time. I don't have anything new. We're just going to dive right in. Are you ready to talk about airplanes? Let's do it. All right. So the airplane, the 727, is a narrow body airliner. Narrow body means there's one aisle down the center, three seats. Three seats, one aisle in the center. It was developed and produced by Boeing. It was the first airliner designed and built after the 707, which is Boeing's first airline. So it's basically Boeing's second Mm -hmm. airplane. The 707 is a four-engine jet that was built in 1958, so a really long time ago. Boeing needed to address the demand for shorter flights from smaller airports. So in 1960, the 727 was launched. 80 orders were placed by United Airlines and Eastern Airlines. They bought 40 each. The first 727 rolled out of the Seattle Assembly Facility in late 1962, first flew in 1963, and entered service with Eastern Airlines in 1964. It was the only tri-jet or three-engine jet that Boeing would ever produce. The engines were placed on each side of the rear fuselage, and a center engine fed through an S-duct. So I'm going to show you a picture. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So it has three engines on the back. Yep. Kind of cool. Very cool. Due to lack of technology available at the time of development, the 727, again, required three crew members, a captain, a first officer, and a flight engineer. It had a single, like I said, it had a single aisle down the center, three seats on each side. That configuration is quite common these days. When you get on almost any domestic airline, there's three three seats on each side, yep. one aisle down the center. Yeah. The shorter the flight, the smaller the plane. Exactly. And the early models carried 106 passengers in two classes, a first class and a, and a coach. And they could fly about 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers. The first variant of the 727 was launched in 1965. That was just stretched by 20 feet and it could carry 134 people, again, in two classes. There were a few other variants, but it's not really important they just basically got longer and longer Mm -hmm. the configuration never changed right they always just want to fit more people in. that's it yeah Mm -hmm. so they just make little modifications to fit more right the more money they can make the better right and aside from airliners there was a cargo version too okay the 727 was mainly used for domestic flights in the u.s but flew lots of international flights especially in europe production ended in september of 1984 after 1834 were built wow so that's kind of a lot, actually. That is a lot. Yeah. Are they are they all still in circulation today? There are some still flying around, uh, but no passenger ones. Okay. So there are some that are cargo. And here's why. It was one of the noisiest airliners ever built. Europe began requiring what's called a hush kit be installed on its engines as early as 1990. A, a hush kit is like a kind of muffler for a jet. It does decrease noise. However, it also decreases efficiency, Mm kind of gets in the way. To combat the decreased efficiency, it was fitted with winglets to increase its efficiency again. However, what was needed were new engines. 
the 1960s technology couldn't be made quiet enough by any number of modifications. And Boeing did a study to fit a quieter engine on it. And it was possible, but it was deemed economically unfeasible because production had ended. So the 727 was slowly retired. It was entirely banned from Australian airspace in 2010 due to the noise. And the last passenger carrying 727 flight was in January of 2019. As of 2022, a total of 38 Boeing 727s are in commercial service as freighters. Okay. Okay. Because I guess as a commercial freighter, the sound doesn't matter. Oh, well, I guess it does for sound I mean, pollution. It matters for people on outside, but right. as a freighter also, they tend to go to freight destinations. Right. Not necessarily super busy airports, kind mm-hmm. of outliers and things like that. Yeah. Throughout its history, it was used on six continents by many companies to carry people and freight and by governments and militaries. It has also been outfitted by private individuals to accommodate their luxurious lifestyle. Now, before I say the next thing, I brought you a vomit bag from the airplane, so you can (laughs) feel free to use that. (laughs) I'll keep it right next to me. As the price of these very cool planes began to fall in value and they became available for sale from major airlines, rich people began buying them as personal transportation. Oh, so they're private jets now? Donald Trump bought one from American Airlines. Of course. And he outfitted it with a bedroom and a golden shower. LOL. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my God. A golden shower. Also, that was a, yeah, that was a reference to the whole other thing. But. Oh, okay. Yeah, it it had a golden, like, a bathroom. Wow. Yeah, it had a bedroom and a bathroom with golden fixtures and. Oh, my God. Here's even worse. He named it Trump Force One. Oh, my God. Your eyes are just rolling. Oh, my God. They rolled so far back. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> they <still> disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Although he later upgraded to a Boeing 757 in 2009. Um, if that wasn't bad enough, American financier Jeff Epstein owned a private 727. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say he named it. Uh-huh. The Lolita Express. Oh, my God. I think we need a moment of silence. I'm just... <laughs> what? I... I mean, if that wasn't a clear indication of what a predator he is, huh, or was, I mean, I, I don't know what else would be. I don't even... I, I oh came across God. this and I went, oh, I... Mm. Oh, anyway, no. I really don't want the last part of the description to ruin it for you. These were very cool airplanes. <laughs> a lot of them were built. They were... Pilots say they were great to fly, but... I had to throw those other parts in there. Of course. Your expressions were priceless. So any (laughs) questions on the 727? Pretty quick. Nope. No questions. (laughs) Just just shocked. (laughs) The company is TAP Air Portugal. The worst airline ever. (laughs) Really? Tell me. (laughs) mm, Yes. Don't get me started. Okay. So TAP stands for? Oh, something Air Portugal? Transportes Aéreos Portugueses. Portuguese. Air, air transport. Yes. Portuguese air transport. Yeah. Yep. So TAP, or Air Portugal, is the state-owned flag carrier airline of Portugal. Mm-hmm. It is based in Lisbon, and that's also their hub. And they monopolize the Lisbon. Like, if you go to Brazil, you can only go with TAP. And they're extremely overpriced. They have a very limited amount of flights that come in and out. And they they just control everything. Wow. Yeah. They have been a member of the Star Alliance, which if you've listened to other episodes, you'd know that 
this is a United Airlines partner, and they've been with the you know as a United Airlines partner since 2005. So if you're going to Portugal, you're from the U.S., you'll go on United, and if you go from from Portugal to somewhere else, you you'll go on Tap. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't mind flying United. I hate <laughs> flying TAP. <laughs> I love it. That's great. TAP operates about 2,500 flights a week to about 90 destinations in 34 countries. The company has a fleet of 97 airplanes. Oh, it's kind of small. It is small. 75 of which are manufactured by Airbus. 22 are built by Embraer in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And some of them are built by ATR. The smaller ones, the ones that are built by Embraer and ATR, they operate as their express carrier called unremarkably TAP Express. Yep. So TAP is fully Airbus. They just operate nothing but that that brand. Okay. okay. The airline was established, oh, as Portuguese Air Transportations in 1946. Its inaugural flight was from Lisbon to Madrid using a DC-3, which is an is an airliner that has two piston engines and is definitely one of the most classic nostalgic airliners. I haven't covered the DC-3 yet, but I will in some episode. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's go back to the company. When was the first flight? 1946. 1946. Okay. So they're new, but they're not like... New, new. New, like, new. Well, they're not. They're no spirit. <laughs> right they're not they weren't established in 2000 or whatever or what's what's the new new one like oh Wheeze or uh, well there's or uh, i think aha and another there's an there's a couple of new ones actually i know one is called aha which seems weird the and new then, ones scare me i feel like i'm walking onto some like rip-off plane that's gonna crash and burn some of those places I heard they pay their flight attendants, they call them interns and they pay them like $10 an hour. And then they don't pay for their hotels and stuff. These are some new airlines in the US that I'm like. That is really questionable. Very questionable. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, hopefully they crash and burn. I'd rather pay a little bit more for a flight and make sure that and the people. And know that the people were taken care of. Yes. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. I don't want a $65 fee if the. Flight attendant literally is eating on food stamps. Right. And like, or I mean, because also it's $65 for the flight attendant to have no place to stay and eat crackers and for me to sit on the wing, basically. Right. You're sitting in a really uncomfortable seat. You have to pay to, to carry a bag on. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Oh. I mean, we could talk about this for yeah. days. <laughs> Let's get back to TAP. Throughout its history, TAP would alternate between various forms of public and private ownership. During its early decades of operation, the airline expanded and launched numerous routes, including the lengthy Lina Area Imperial Colonial Service across Africa, various domestic and European services, and its first transatlantic service, which was Rio. Brazil, yeah. yeah, As you you noted. Yes. In 1962, TAP entered the jet age, and in 1964, TAP bought its first Boeing 707 and carried its one millionth passenger. In 1967, the airline became the first in Europe to exclusively operate jets. In 1979, the airline changed its name to TAP Air Portugal. Prior to that, it was just TAP. TAP operated a whole lot of different types of Boeing and Airbus planes over the years, but by the late 1990s, TAP had sold its Boeing 727s and 737s and replaced them with Airbus A319s, 320s, and 321s. And its wide bodies were also replaced by the Airbus A340. These changes led to TAP become an Airbus-only operator, which they still are. Hmm. There are some business advantages and disadvantages to that, but 
Apparently they don't care. Is it a beneficial thing? You can make a deal with the company and get better pricing. But if something happens, like with the 737 being grounded, mm-hmm. if they grounded Airbus, that they, they may then, not have airplanes to fly. Right. So then, there's kind of a give and take there. Okay. You know. Yeah. So you said that you've flown on tap. I have. I used to fly to Rio from Madrid through Lisbon and then Lisbon, Rio oh. as a child all the time. Interesting. I love that. Okay. Yeah. That's So that's, yeah. <laughs> so this is the one I wrote with you in mind. Mm-hmm. So next, let's look at the location of the event that we're going to talk about. And for that, we have to go to Portugal, kind of. The archipelago of Madeira is a group of several small islands and one large island in the Atlantic Ocean situated approximately 600 miles, 1,000 kilometers southwest of Lisbon and about 400 miles or 850 kilometers directly west of Morocco. So we're talking about Madeira. So guessing that you've never been to Tenerife, you've probably never been to Madeira. I have not, no. Okay. I have not heard much about this. I looked it up. It seems as though other destinations are probably more appealing to me. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is there's not really much land in Madeira. Is it mostly, it's mountainous? It's The main island of Madeira is made up of the eroded remnants of an extinct shield volcano. Okay. And basically it results in a landscape that's just steep cliffs and ravines running straight down to the sea from its high central spine. Madeira was discovered very early, as early as 50 BCE, but it wasn't placed on European maps until around 1330 AD. Wow. And then it was claimed by the Portuguese in 1419. However, unlike the nearby Canary Islands, there was no indigenous population. That makes at sense. All. I mean, there's yeah. not enough, as you said, not enough land for, for you to live and on. And the Canaries are actually kind of close. Right. So I think settlers, like from the Canaries or whatever, the Gauchos, like we said, would have come there and been like, why, why, why go further? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. We kind of see that situation with Hawaii. There are many islands that you can live on and a couple that you wouldn't because they're so steep and on. Right. They're like, just, they are the volcanoes. Right. It's just the uh, volcano. It's, yeah. And it's a so volcanic. So that's why it didn't have any people. But regardless, the Portuguese began settling there around 1425 with the establishment of the town of Funchal. Is that how I would say that? How is it spelled? F-U-N-C-H-A-L. Funchal? Funchal? Yes. I I guess. I don't know. I've never heard that pronounced. So Today, the island is home to more than 289,000 people, of which 110,000 live in Funchal. The island also accommodates about 1.4 million tourists each year who visit for the continuous sun, stunning views, and the local cuisine. Ah, yes. Portuguese food. I don't know anything about Portuguese food. Um, What's the cuisine? (laughs) You have a lot of bacalhau. Uh, That is the main dish. Portuguese food is delicious. It's uh, very flavorful. A lot of garlic and yeah, it's delicious. It can get a little bit boring when you're there for a while. Okay. Um, it also it has very humble origins. So you're working with a lot of like potato, earth right. foods, and then also seafood. You'd say like an animated rat could, could prepare it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Remy, come on. Exactly. Let's go do it. <laughs> <laughs> Madeira, as a tourist destination, started to get popular in the early 1960s. And it quickly became clear that the island needed an airport. However, the only level part of the island was already taken up by the only city of Funchal. So engineers built a runway, 
that occupied a hilly peninsula between two bays. They used bulldozers to flatten the area and fill dirt, both recovered from the site and brought in from the area, to build a flat spot upon which they placed a runway of just one mile long, or 1,600 meters. The relatively short runway opened in 1964. It was placed on a man-made tabletop, if you will, with sharp drops on both ends. And there are pictures on my Instagram, but I'll show it to you. Oh, wow. That is tiny. Wow. It's... Wow. (laughs) That's wild. They built a little mountain to put it on. I mean, the view is impressive with the mountains behind. It was made of pavement or tarmac, which is similar to what we use to pave roads instead of concrete. It was grooved. Are runways normally concrete? Runways are normally made of concrete. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Runways are normally concrete with significant amount of steel reinforcement inside the concrete so, so that it does like mesh. so that the weight doesn't crush Break it or yeah yeah mm-hmm. okay it was made of tarmac instead of concrete but it was grooved grooves are used to ensure that run that water runs off to the sides of the runway and that grooves are typically cut into concrete runways and they go across so across the short way although tarmac can be grooved the substrate is softer and it can wear away mm-hmm the engineers recognized this, but they said that due to the slope of the runway, rainwater would not stand on the runway. Famous lost words. Oh, but did I mention the slope? One end of the runway was 50 feet higher than the other. What? And it sloped down toward the ocean. Oh, no. So have a look at the picture again. See, I thought that was just the angle uh-uh. of where the picture is being taken from. But yes, I do notice it. I mean, that doesn't help with landing. You're just, you're creating... A hill for the plane to just keep rolling down. Wow, that's not smart. (laughs) I mean, they are Portuguese. And they're working with what they have. Yes. Which is not much in this little Madeira mountain, like little Madeira island chain. Okay. Downward slopes can hurt both the takeoff distance and the landing distance of aircraft because you could be taking off up a slope or landing down a slope. Typically, you want it to be the other way. Take off pointing down land pointing up however sometimes the wind doesn't favor that so you got to do what you got to do right so in addition sloped runways require extra data to be derived from landing charts due to the penalties associated with like we said the physics right the maximum slope for almost all airplanes is two percent but in this case this runway is just one percent so that's kind of a big deal though it's not huge we still have to get extra data it's not terrible okay Obviously, we want to take off, like I said, going downhill, and we want to land going uphill, but sometimes the wind doesn't cooperate. Right. Even with the slope, it was technically long enough for the Boeing 727 to land and take off, but it was very close to the limit. And depending on the weight and runway condition, airlines recognized this immediately, and air crews had to have special training to operate in and out of this airport. I mean, that makes sense, and that's good that they're taking those safety precautions. Yeah. And that, that they, they went, okay, well, this is short, and it's sloped, and we really should train our pilots. Yeah. Okay. So at least they did that. Wow. One thing right before it all goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> By 1972, it became clear that the runway would need to be extended if it was going to be able to serve the tourist season and the increasingly large planes. But these things take time, especially in Portugal, and the expansion program hadn't broken ground as of 1977. So here is a TAP 727. Oh, cool. 
the three engine one right yeah the wings are shorter than i was expecting or maybe it's just from afar they look kind of short they're actually kind of short okay yeah yeah because i mean all the large airplanes i always see have have giant huge. wings they're and, like double the size of and the, the body and the more we get on with technology the longer the wings get in relation to the airplane right but this is what it is so we've set the stage anything you want to know about the situation anything i should know no i mean i've told you about the airport and the airplane and right i mean i i see the scene you have set the stage i am ready for disaster to hit so you're ready for the date yes november 19th 1977 so we're still in 1977 and november 19th is my birthday oh wow yeah yeah, I didn't know that. That mm-hmm. was that's a that was a bonus. That yes. you, just, you just gave me a little. I mean, this gave, episode me was gift. made for me. I love it. It was actually made for you, but that's <laughs> so funny. So, Tap Air Portugal Flight Four Twenty Five prepared for a scheduled flight from Brussels to Lisbon, and Lisbon to Funchal. But as we said, in order to land at Madeira International Airport, pilots had to undergo special training, and these pilots had all received their special qualifications. The weather forecast for that day was thunderstorms all over the area, and the pilots were expecting this. And as a result, their alternate airport was none other than Las Palmas Gran Canaria. Oh, it's coming full circle. Mm-hmm. So in theory, a direct and pretty smooth route with a good alternative. The whole thing that happened in Tenerife mm-hmm. had happened in the year we are in. Right. But in February, did I say, or March? So it's on their mind. Right. It's it's a touchy subject. It's sort of Still a scary place to think about having to go. Still very fresh. Yes. Yes. So the flight from Brussels to Lisbon was entirely routine. They landed in Lisbon. 156 additional passengers and eight additional crew were boarded for the next leg to Madeira. And that left just a few seats open or empty. Just like literally three seats empty. Okay. So full flight. Full flight. Tap 425 took off at 7.55 p.m. for the 1.5 hour flight to Funchal. They cruised over the Atlantic Ocean... And at 9.10 p.m. that night, the pilots radioed the control tower on the island of Porto Santo, which is where Funchal is, and requested permission to begin their descent, and permission was given. The latest weather report issued at 8.50 p.m. described widespread cumulonimbus formations, which are thunderstorms, Mm -hmm. with a cloud base at 1,500 feet and intermittent rain showers. So it's basically stormy. Right. Not the best conditions. No, and it's 8.50 p.m., so... Also dark, low visibility. Yep. Yeah. So the pilots talked about this, and during their approach briefing, we talk about what's going to happen right ahead of time. Mm -hmm. The pilots noted that if the weather prevented them from landing in Madeira, their alternate would be Las Palmas, 210 miles or 340 kilometers to the south. Madeira International Airport didn't have a precision approach. A precision approach would bring them really close down to the runway within 200 feet of the runway and put them in a position to land mm-hmm. without reference to the outside world. So that would have been optimal. Right. Not considering any weather changes or wind change or Absolutely. anything. Yep. And so the precision approach would have been optimal. But we covered in the last episode, these islands are kind of out there nobody really thinks about them so it doesn't have a precision approach right it has what's called an ndb approach or a non-precision approach that gets them down to about a thousand feet above the ground 
they're going to have to land by seeing the runway and essentially finishing the last like three miles or so Mm -hmm. visually. That means the pilots couldn't use their instruments to get all the way lined up with the runway to be in a position to land. It required that the pilots be able to see the runway at least for the last few miles. And at night with scattered uh, rain showers, significant cloud cover, the crew knew and acknowledged that that would be challenging. That's a very difficult expectation to put on someone is to try and see through low visibility. They'd been to this airport before, so they kind of had a feeling for what it was and they were trained, but that's still very difficult. And training doesn't necessarily account for a different weather patterns and like you can only train so much. And, you know, especially with thunderstorms, it can be good visibility Mm -hmm. and then bad and then good and then bad because it rains and then lets up and rains and lets up. The clouds go up and down. And and there are pockets where, oh, there's no cloud here, but then you're going to go right through. Like, I mean, I've looked out a window when I'm flying and it's always really interesting to see how we fly through the clouds and then those pockets of air where you drop. Right turbulence like all of that it's and, things that you cannot see and that's and don't something know. and that's something to talk about too you know while we're doing this procedure we're gonna get bumped around because right. it's kind of like rain showers thunder showers we're gonna go bump in and out of that you're all in, those things are distracting right and you're in the middle of the ocean on a small island like right. that's to be expected and your alternate like i said was 210 miles away yeah that's not close that's not close That's what, like another hour? That's almost, that's like another 40 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. At about 9.15 p.m., TAP 425 lined up for an approach to runway 6 from the southwest. The controller reported, 425, Funchal, for your information, we have showers over the airport. Now visibility is 3 kilometers, which as we know is just better than 1 mile. Mm Mm-hmm. So as far as visual range for an airplane, that's actually pretty bad. Okay. We really need 3 miles. Okay, and three kilometers is... Three kilometers is about a little more than one mile, like okay. one point something, like 1.3. I'm European, but I, I know mileage, you do miles. Not, okay. not kilometers per hour, because I've always driven here. I say the metric unit. Yes, I appreciate addition, knowing both. Yeah. Yes, I, I oh, say yeah. that in addition, because not everybody goes by American freedom units. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm, yeah, I, I, uh, it's a whole nother discussion. Okay, <laughs> like, uh, do we want to get into mm. that? <laughs> so, like I said, not very good visibility. But just minutes earlier, the visibility had been four to five kilometers, which is more than three miles. Mm-hmm. Um, conditions seemed to be worsening, but about five minutes later, the controller reported that the visibility had improved just slightly to five kilometers or three miles. But the pilots of TAP four twenty five said that they couldn't see the airport. So for some perspective, the plane is traveling about two and a half miles every minute. So that means if they saw the airport at three miles out, they'd have about 70 seconds, which is not that much time flying. Right. So, so that's 70 really, seconds to line up and get that that's right. centered. To get from their like 1,000 feet down to the runway, get lined up, get the airplane fully in a position to land. Right. It's not undoable at all. Mm-hmm. You just really need to be prepared for it. Right. So the pilots requested that the runway lights be turned up to max, and the controller told them that they'd already done that. I mean, that's a bad sign. But here's the interesting thing. The runway lighting had been installed so that it couldn't all be turned on at the same time. Oh. The electric wasn't available. So the controller had to choose between the lights in the runway touchdown zone, where the airplane is supposed to land, or 
the visual approach slope indicator, or what we're going to call a VASI. I'm going to show you some pictures of this. Okay. The VASI is a four is a set of four bright lights that sits on the side of the runway, and they're arranged in a cube pattern. Are you supposed to land in that cube? No. They tell you the slope where you are. Okay. So if we are high, we're going to get four white lights. Okay. If we are on slope, we'll get two white at the top, mm -hmm. two red at the bottom. Okay. And if we are below slope, we get all red. Okay. Okay. And it just has to do with the angle that we line up. And it's to help guide us down on the correct slope to touch the runway. Right. So now that you understand Vassy, he could choose either the touchdown zone lights or the Vassys, but not both. Now, the rest of the runway side lights are working, but they're dim. So the controller can't control the brightness of these. So here's the picture. So here's what it would look like with all the lights on. Okay, yeah, great. Super clear. That's how it would look with all the lights on. Right. Not, the, not a big deal. I mean, you can see where you're supposed to land. Everything is clear. You can see what's happening. But here's what we have to choose from, which is Vassys or touchdown zone lights. Mm -hmm. But we can, So this is what we can get. This is our choice. This is like pick your poison. Right. Ooh. We get one or the other, but we can't get both. Like I, I showed you in the first picture, like... Can I guess which, like, can I guess what I, like, sort of, he what turned, would I would choose? He used the Vassies. See, I would have chosen the runway because that's more important. You need to see where you're landing. And if that runway is so small. He chose the Vassies because he wanted to make sure that the airplane wasn't was too low or right. too high. It was that it was on the correct slope. Yeah. In visual conditions or like normal night. I agree with you, but in their conditions, they kind of need to know where they are on the slope. Right. Would would the runway lights, would you be able to, obviously it doesn't tell you the angle as well as the Vassy lights because that's the point of them. But with the runway lights, wouldn't you be able to sort of... Not really. No. Okay. No. I'm trying. Trying to come up with a solution. <laughs> okay. So we set it up with the runway lights. So how are you feeling so far? Nervous. I'm just mad that they can only pick one or the other. I know. I mean, you're just asking for a disaster at that point. And if you know that you can only pick one or the other, inform the pilot and tell and him. let him choose. Yeah. Let him choose or even just say like, look, this is what we're dealing with. Right. Go to Las Palmas. Right. Change course. Anyway, so the crew conducts the instrument approach procedure. Again, the non-precision instrument pr approach procedure. They descend to a thousand feet. And they get to what's called the missed approach point, but they don't see the runway. The missed approach point is where you absolutely have to see the runway because if you get past that point, you're not in a position to land. Right. You can't, it would be too steep. So they get to the missed approach point. They do a go around. They say they didn't see it. So they missed, which is that go around. They climb up. They start the approach again. The pilots reported to the controller that they were climbing back to 3,500 feet and they intended to try the approach again to the same runway, but from the opposite direction. So now they're going to land downhill because the wind is actually favoring the downhill landing. So the first one was an uphill and they didn't see it. So they're going to come try from the other side. Okay. Maybe the weather's better on the other side. This would allow them to land with a better headwind, but again, they'd land downhill. Right. At 9.30 p.m., TAP 425 got the runway in sight, lined up for runway 24, which is the opposite of runway 6. Mm -hmm. And at 9.34, the, the tower controller asked, can you see the runway? The pilots had unfortunately lost sight of the runway due to clouds and thunderstorms moving across the airport. TAP 425 replied, negative. TAP 425 is making a missed approach. So now they've done this approach procedure twice. Mm-hmm. 
this time they got all the way down to 600 feet before the pilots had lost sight of the runway and it forced them to go around. As they returned to the beginning of the approach pattern and TAP 425 told the controller, okay, I was on final for 2-4, I completely lost visual. Now I'll try one more approach and if I can't get it this time, we'll go to Las Palmas. The captain had decided that the third attempt would be the last. And if it didn't work, he'd divert to the Canary Islands, which would be costly for the company. Yes, okay. but I mean, when it comes to safety, it's you eat the cost. Right. And he, he did say, if I can't get it this time, we're going to divert. Yeah. Again, it would be a loss for the company. The passengers and crew would get stuck until the next day. But, you know, whatever. The controller then said, the front has been passing quickly. Now it's holding on longer. I think if you wait, maybe you can land. Oh, no. But the pilots of TAP 425, they didn't have enough fuel to hold. I was also going to say, because if they wait, then run out of fuel, and then don't have enough to get to Las Palmas, then they have no other option and they have to land. Right. Even if it's incorrectly. And it, yeah. So he tells the controller, I can't. I only have enough fuel for one more approach. But if you listen to my podcast, there's an episode called Siren Song. And the pilots knew about... Uh, another crash that had happened years earlier called ALM 980. Mm -hmm. And they made a similar mistake. They attempted to land too many times in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And then after three attempts, they decided to divert to St. Croix, which is like, again, the kind of the same distance that we're talking about to Las Palmas. Mm -hmm. But as we know, this airplane ran out of fuel before reaching St. Croix and it forced the airplane to ditch in the open Caribbean in a squall and 23 people died. Oh, wow. So the crew of TAP 425 knew that if they waited too long to divert to Las Palmas, like you said, they could be forced in a, into a situation where landing at Madeira was impossible, but they didn't have enough fuel to get to the Canaries. Right. So they were aware. The crew was like, we know this. Mm -hmm. We need to pay attention. So they're on top of it. Don't worry. You okay. look nervous. Don't worry. I do. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been on this podcast before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At 944, TAP 425 lined up to land for the third and final time, as the captain had said. The pilots called that they had the lights of runway 24 in sight, and the controller called them back and told them a severe downpour had just started and was moving towards them. The pilots could still see some of the runway lights, but the ones at the far end of the runway were disappearing, and they were disappearing into a rain shaft. Ooh. So now they have basically like a rain cloud moving up the runway toward them. And maybe this is a preemptive question, but are you able to land in rain? Yes. yes. Absolutely. So the rain cloud coming towards them is not necessarily an issue? Well, it's an issue because it's going to hurt their visibility. Right. But in terms of the, the physical landing... We have to have like wet runway data. Right. Like we, you need to understand that there are factors to landing on a wet runway. You need more... Basically, you need more distance mm -hmm. to break. But you can land okay. when it's raining. So the rain shaft is moving toward them. And then the pilots lost sight of the airport, but then picked it up just a moment later. So like you said before, they're moving in and out of the clouds. Yeah. This is really challenging because they're like, there it is. Oh, I lost it. Oh, there it is again. Right. The tower called them and said, 425, for your information, I now have calm wind on runway 24. And then the controller said, will you try it? The pilot replied, okay, I'm on final and I'll land. I love how it's for your information. It's like, yes, this is this is your job. This is pretty important <laughs> <Yes>. information. <laughs> it's not just an FYI. 
So the controller then says, okay, it's calm, cleared to land. This was the last radio transmission to them because now they're cleared to land. But TAP 425, these guys buckling a little under the pressure. The airplane is going too fast. They're not quite paying enough attention. They're really fixated on landing. 25 knots faster than they should be going. Okay. But they kept the runway in sight. Close to the ground, the pilots flared the airplane. They brought the nose up. You Quick a question. question. Yes. Yeah. Um, why were they going too fast? So they don't have auto thrust in this airplane. It's not doing it automatically. So they have to do it themselves. They're just going too fast. Okay. They just Miscalculated. Are. Airplanes move really fast and you really have to be on top of it to, to maintain regulate. a mm-hmm. consistent speed. Airplanes can get away from you really quickly. You, you have to multitask and hyper-focus at the same time. So we have to do a good scan right. and we have to make sure that we're in a position okay. to land and stuff like that. And landing is particularly important. Mm-hmm. So these pilots get close to the ground and they flare the airplane, raising the nose for landing. But at that speed, combined with the gentle downslope of the airport, the 727 started what we call floating. So we're just off the runway, skimming along just a few feet above the surface, but the airplane isn't touching down. Okay. The reason for that is when you get really close to the ground in an airplane, a cushion of air builds up there. That's called ground effect. The closer you get, the sort of more firm that cushion gets. Mm -hmm. And you have to either force the airplane onto the ground Mm -hmm. if you're going too fast. If you're going the right speed... It'll you'll just land naturally, right? And that's how we know what the right the air speed is. Dissipates, right? And dissipates, yes. and that's what the right speed is, right? But if you're going faster, that sort of cushion is harder, right? Which makes sense because it's keeping the plane up. Because right. the whole point is speed pushes, pushes, and propels right? Keeps the, plane the airplane out. in the yes. air. So yeah. we're going too fast. And to your point, that it's keeping the airplane in the air. They're skimming along just a couple feet above the surface and unable to touch down. As a general rule of thumb. An airplane will travel an extra 100 feet for each one knot above its planned landing speed. And this runway is just over 5,000 feet long. It's wet and it's sloping down. They're going 25 knots too fast. That's going to put them roughly halfway down the runway before the wheels touch. Oh, that is not good. But, I mean, they are going downhill, which is towards the beach. So maybe, in theory, fall off onto the beach. (laughs) Hopefully. We'll see what happens. So the 727 sailed past the touchdown zone, and the pilot pushed the nose forward to get the wheels on. Tap 425 touched down about halfway down the runway, but still over speed. And let me explain that for a second. Mm -hmm. Because you can do one of two things in this situation. You can force the airplane down using its control surfaces, and it will not dissipate its speed. Or you can hold it off and let it naturally dissipate, dissipate its speed, but it's going to continue to going. eat runway. So you Ooh. get a choice. You get to touch down way farther down the runway, or you can force it on and be too fast. Ooh, There's no I, good answer. <laughs> yeah, see, I was going to answer. I was going to say my answer would be, I guess I would, I mean, there is no good answer, but would letting it go further down the runway but then there's a dead end so i mean there's yeah there's no good answer wow the good answer is go around well yeah don't land right but these guys they're kind of i'm not sure what they're thinking Mm -hmm. they're like okay if we go around we have to go to las palmas right loss aversion right i mean it always comes back to money it does it does they touch down about halfway down the runway and still over speed the downpour that had just passed like we said that big rain shaft that was moving up the runway they flew through it 
through, flew through the rain shaft, and the runway was very wet. The water hadn't had time to drain off. You know, the runway was grooved, but over time it gets worn. Well, that allowed the water that had just been dumped on the runway by the rain shaft to run down the slope toward the end. As a result, when the 727 finally did touch down, the surface had a layer of water on it, and passengers on TAP 425 would later describe so much standing water that they seemed to be landing on the ocean instead of a runway. Oh, wow. So the downpour preceding the landing was of far greater intensity than anyone had known. Right. But it was dumping just ton of water. And imagine it's just running downhill. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because, I mean, if they'd landed going uphill. Do you know what a hydroplaning is? Yes. Okay. Hydroplaning is I'll... when you slip across water on yeah. the road. Yes. yes. It's a wedge of water that builds up in front of a tire and then eventually l- creeps under the tire and lifts it off the surface. Okay. Preventing it from making contact with surface below it. Mm-hmm. Well, the 727 started hydroplaning. Hydroplaning is also dependent on speed, as you know from driving a car. If it's raining really hard and you go really fast, it starts to feel nice and slippery. Right. But if you go slower, you're fine. You feels fine. And you have control in theory. So <laughs> we already know that they were going too fast. Right. So we're not in a good place right here. No, really? Mm. I feel like this is perfect conditions. Mm. <laughs> so tap 425 is going too fast. So they start hydroplaning immediately upon touchdown. So the brakes are now completely ineffective because they're not touching the surface upon which they need friction. Right. So the crew applies maximum brakes and maximum thrust reverse. There's a mechanism that basically lets the engine push the, the plane the other way. Okay. When you land and then you hear the engine spool up and it kind of... Mm-hmm. That's, it's pushing the other way. That's and then reverse thrust. On the wings, they have the there's little... There's little... Yeah, the, the things lift. that stand up. Yeah. And also, the if you look at the engine, there's like maybe a clamshell. Looks like a clamshell bucket that comes out like that. Mm-hmm. That's the reverser. Okay. So they put on max reverse. So when they put on max reverse, they actually lose the airflow to the tail, which because the wheels aren't on, the tail is all that's allowing them to steer. Oh, wow. So they block now the airflow to the tail. So they have no way of steering. So now they have no steering ability because they're not touching the surface and they can't steer. The airplane skidded to the right, then back to the left. And 45 seconds after touchdown, the three-engine Boeing with 164 people on board ran out of runway. At 90 miles per hour, it was going too slow to fly and too fast to stop. And TAP 425 plunged down the 50-foot embankment clearing the airport perimeter road but smashing tail first into an old stone bridge that spanned a dry ravine the fuselage broke into four pieces and the wings were ripped off Ooh. the mostly intact tail section sat on the old bridge while the rest of the of the plane fell onto the rocky beach below the cockpit was crushed underneath the disintegrating passenger cabin Ooh. All the remaining fuel from the ruptured wings caused a fire, and it exploded. The fuel flashed over, and the wreckage began to burn. But some people managed to survive. A few passengers from the last row found themselves still strapped into their seats on top of the bridge while the wreck burned below them. Quite a few others had been thrown from the plane as it broke apart, including some who landed in the ocean. Lucky them. Wow. Among the survivors was 17-year-old Emmanuel Torres who found himself immersed in seawater with only minor injuries. 
In a spur-of-the-moment act of heroism, he picked up a two-year-old boy struggling in the surf and carried him to safety. Witnesses rushed to the scene, fighting fire and smoke, cutting and disentangling wounded passengers from their seatbelts. Wow, everyone was just flung. Everywhere. Airport firefighters also saw the explosion off the end of the runway, 2-4, and they sped toward it, only to discover that the plane had actually fallen off the elevated airport and onto the beach. So they had to drive back up the runway and all the way around on the city streets to get access to the crash site. Oh, no. And by the time they got there, local police and firefighters had already arrived from the town of Funchal. Okay. And the rescue attempt was now underway. 31 passengers and two flight attendants survived. Most of them had serious injuries. 131 people died, including all three pilots. Some bodies were never found, including the pilots. So oh, wow. as we saw with the disintegration, yep. once that fire reaches a certain temperature, then there's, yeah, it just melts. Metal and everything is destroyed. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, with huge fuel tank just lit on fire, there's no way you can put that out in time. Right, right. It's just... At the time, it was the deadliest aircraft accident in Portuguese history. Wow. So you're saying there's a worse one? There isn't, actually. Okay. So this is the worst aircraft disaster in Portuguese history. Wow. But the question remained, was Madeira International Airport inherently dangerous? So let's talk about what happened. I mean... I think you have a pretty clear idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that the airport is dangerous, but that danger is clear and obvious from the get-go like it's very it's fixed it's not a dynamic danger right Right. you kind of like they were trained for it they Mm -hmm. knew exactly what they were looking at they and they knew that they shouldn't have landed that they should have gone to las palmas but they just didn't want to cost the the, the inconvenience yeah the inconvenience to cost the company money i mean whatever their reasoning behind it was it was wrong and because the dangers of landing there as you said they're clear it's not a changing danger it's not something that went wrong in the moment it was a bad decision right so it's pretty clear like you said poor pilot judgment yeah right the approach was way too fast the runway was a river Mm -hmm. the speed caused a very late touchdown they did the max reverse thing without having their wheels on which blocked all the airflow to the tail now they can't control the airplane so now they start to slide sideways back and forth Contributing, perhaps, was the poor drainage, like I said. Yeah. Slippery rubber, maybe, because as it gets wet, some rubber comes up off from other airplanes. The flooded runway is definitely something that should be fixed. Right. But again, that I wouldn't say is the determining factor. I mean, obviously, it is one of the factors of the accident. But the determining factor was just poor judgment from the pilot. It really was. Absolutely. Because at no point was that the right call. And he knew it. It's interesting that you say that. I think he did too. Absolutely. They knew it. They knew it. Of course. Because he was like, one more time and then I guess we'll have to go to the other airport. Right. And it's like, so you know that this one more time is really not a one more time that you should be taking. Right. And also, the pilot had to then force the nose down because he looked down at some point and he goes, we're not touching down. Oh, we're too fast. Let's push it onto the runway. Right. Right then he should have been like, okay, take off. we're out of here. Yep. He had plenty of speed, plenty, plenty of, time. of time, yeah, to go. No, we're, he hadn't we're touched we're down. Out of here. Yeah, there, exactly. Like, there's no reason for him to not have just gone just up. Just say nope. Bye. And just, I mean, he knew what he was working with. He knew the length of that. Right. He did that runway. Let's not pretend that this was their first time there. No. 
Let's not Again, pretend that. He was trained. He was for trained. This. He was trained, but I guarantee he'd been there before. Yeah. And that's probably the problem. It is, could be. I know this. We'll be fine. I've been here before. Yeah, this is we'll not be a big fine. deal. Right. So if you listen to other episodes of this podcast, it's the same. A lot of the places people go, oh, no, I know this place. I know this place. It's going to be fine. Yeah. You don't know it in the state that it is in at that moment. At that moment. There's something called a stabilized approach. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't meet stabilized approach criteria. Right. He's too fast. Yeah. And he should have looked down and said, we're too fast. We're out of here. He's too fast. The conditions are wrong. Bad. Just bad. You're going downhill. The runway is wet. Everything about it, he knew, should not have made that call. You know, we still look at these. We still examine these very carefully. And we say, what can we do better? So when Boeing engineers looked more closely at the aircraft... They found a potential design flaw in the 727s, like ABS brakes, basically anti-skid brakes. The system wouldn't activate if a skid began immediately on touchdown. It, the wheel needed to start turning before it would detect a skid. But again, Boeing can go back and fix that, but that is not what caused it. Right. I don't care. I, I care that Boeing found that, but this is not the way to find that. It's not a plane malfunction. No. It's not no. a engineering malfunction. It's not anything to do with the performance of the aircraft. It is everything to do with the pilot and the decision that he made. Right. and we Or the team. One of the other factors was we looked at the runway lighting. Right. Yes. And we kind of said, like, we're going to pick one. I mean, Nothing's good. which one do you pick? Right. Yeah. Nothing's good, but we're going to pick one. Mm-hmm. So without touchdown zone lights, it's hard to judge where you are down the runway. Okay, fair. So that's kind of a like a, we kind of have to acknowledge that things happen really fast and all that stuff is going past you. And I actually know by looking at the runway lights where I am on the runway at night by the Mm. markings during the day. Right. They didn't have that. And they they really probably had very little depth perception. It's raining. Their windshield wipers are running on the airplane. Right. The light runway side lights are dim. They're really just in a bad situation. Yeah. But to your point, they put themselves there. Mm-hmm. The official cause was listed as essentially pilot error. Poor judgment. Yeah. So let's acknowledge that the pilots made some very bad decisions, beginning with an unstabilized approach and ending with carnage. Yeah. I was like, ending with complete disaster. Right. <laughs> In the Portuguese authorities, authority final report, they made three recommendations. That the airport consider modifying its lighting system, that more strict adherence to weather minimums be enforced, and that weather observation in the area be improved. I agree that maybe those things needed to be improved, but... I agree that those things needed to be improved. Wow. That's the tail sitting on top of the old bridge. Also, sturdy bridge. Yes. It is barely damaged. It is like a little bit crumbled. (laughs) I mean, we need to start building things like that again. Mm. (laughs) All of those factors, brightening the lights and having more rules to do with weather. Yes, all very helpful. But I don't know if it would have changed anything because at the end of the day, the pilot wanted to land whether it was optimal conditions or not. And, you know, unfortunately, he made that decision and went with it. And unfortunately, we see that theme again and again and again in, in aviation history. And I don't mean just in the 1970s. I know we looked at two events from 1977, Mm -hmm. but that happens today. Yeah. That has not changed. I mean, human cockiness is never going to change. And human error is never going to change. And people being lazy and trying to cut corners, never going to change. Oh, absolutely. So when I did the research for this, 
there's like a differing opinion. Some people say it was pilot error, which I subscribe to. Mm Mm-hmm. But some people say that it was the other factors, like the runway was bad and the conditions and the... Potentially, but also who knows what it looked like from the ground. The tower should have said conditions are not good enough to land right now. You should go to the other airport. Right. Now, but it's now but here's here's something that came up in the incident report. Mm-hmm. The Portuguese government had acknowledged years prior that an accident like this was quote bound to happen because of the poor infrastructure in the islands, both in the Canaries and in Madeira. That is ridiculous. If you are acknowledging the fact that an accident is going to happen because you haven't. Because of poor infrastructure. Right. Yep. What? That should not be an airport that should be open at that point. If you're knowingly allowing people to risk their lives going to that airport, fix it or close it. So they fixed it. So what happened as a result? They fixed it. Of course. Madeira Airport. A costly project expanded the runway platform outward over the area where TAP 425 crashed. It added initially just 650 feet or 200 meters to its total length. This expansion involved the demolition of the stone bridge that we looked at. No. That had been damaged in the crash to make way for a new perimeter road. That didn't open until 1986. I'm sorry, what? And 30, like almost 30 years later? So that was, so the crash happened in 77. So that would have been. Oh, wait, no, 86. Sorry. Yeah, nine years to expand the runway, but they only expanded it by 650 feet. That's nothing. It's really not. It was still too short. Because if that accident had happened, even with the extra meterage added, I mean, it still would have happened. But now, instead of a beach being below, it literally ran right up to the ocean. So, th- only I'm, I mean, I guess in a way, so if there's another crash, you're in the ocean, so fire will be put out, but... I mean, that's not that's not a, that's not a solution no. that's not a fix so that's a band-aid they knew that it wasn't good enough and they figured it out and over the next 14 years the airport undertook an ambitious plan to extend the runway by 3,000 feet or 900 meters using a concrete bridge engineers drilled support pylons in the ground that would hold up the elevated runway the runway was finished in 2000 and is long enough to accommodate airplanes except super jumbos which is like the A380 and the 747-800. Okay. It even became a tourist attraction, and travelers to Madeira can now drive underneath the runway while large airliners take off and land directly above their head. In recognition of this unique and impressive architectural feat, the International Association for Bridge and Structural Engineering gave the project its annual, quote, Outsourcing Structure Award for 2004, making the first and only time that an airport had ever received the recognition. Wow. So now I'm going to show you a picture of it now. I was about to ask. That's impressive. It doesn't even look like the same place. No. And I can, (laughs) it's interesting to see where it was cut off Mm -hmm. because obviously anything before those white pillars is where the ground ended and now where it does end. I mean, the fact that this was a functioning airport without that extra bit of strip that is crazy. I, I agree. Wow. The fact that they were landing, not huge, but large jets on yeah. this very short runway. I mean, every pilot that landed there deserves a prize. They probably went, oh man, I don't like going here. Yeah. That's. But also, 
by 2004, they're like, what were we doing? Why did we bother flying there before this happened? Like putting everyone's life at risk when they could have just done this from the get-go. That is a huge project. Huge. So let's talk about now. So technology has improved significantly, obviously, so you can see all the support mechanisms and stuff for this. Right. But we've enacted something called, or we've invented something called EMAS. EMAS is a type of aerated concrete that sits at the end of a runway, but EMAS is good at dissipating energy for airplanes that run into it. They essentially run into it. It's aerated, so they sink down into it, and it dissipates the energy without ripping the airplane apart. Okay. So they kind of run off into the EMAS and they stop. Now, I don't know. I probably am not imagining it correctly. Is it just a chunk of the runway that's built in this specific way? Or is it like a block that you crash into? It's the overrun portion. kind Kind of what you're talking about. It's an overrun portion of the runway. It's called Engineered Material Arresting System. Mm -hmm. And it is flat with the runway, but allows airplanes to run into it to dissipate their energy. Here's an airplane that overran into an EMAS. So those marks on the... Yes, the gashes. The gashes are where the wheels sank down. Oh. Into it. That is really interesting. That is very cool. And it works for airliners as well. That's smart and definitely necessary. Yes. EMAS systems are being installed in air- at airports around the world now, especially airports like the one in Funchal where mm-hmm. you don't have any margin for error. So you can use a very short overrun, fill it with EMAS, and it'll dissipate the energy of that. Right. So airplane. then the accident would never have happened because you would have hit the EMAS and then they would have landed safely yeah. in Potentially. Yeah, yeah, potentially. So that's the technological advancement of EMAS. So we have to ask, could this happen today? I mean, yes. You know, when we did the last episode, we said all those factors lined up. They had to line up so perfectly. Mm-hmm. This did not take that kind of orchestration. No, this wasn't no. one small thing after another. It wasn't. It was one poor decision. It was a it was a single poor decision. Yep. And that single poor decision, 100% absolutely could and does still happen. 85% of what we call bent metal mm-hmm. crashes, incidents, whatever, are pilot error. Yep. And typically resulting from bad judgment. So could this happen? 100% it could happen. Making the runway longer helps, but it does not solve the problem. No, and at the end of the day, you can train a pilot. You can give them all the tools. They're going to make that last-minute decision. They're the ones who are in charge of the aircraft and are going to decide if this is safe or not. So it's at the hands of the pilot. pilot. And you you brought that up before. I mean, you just said the pilot made the decision. and, And so what we can do is just try to teach about things like this. So that when the person thinks about it, they go, yeah, I shouldn't do this. Right. Like I've seen this before. I've I've heard this before. Right. I've heard this before. This is like the scenario of whatever or incident. Right. And as you said, he did think about a previous experience. And so that's what was on his mind was let's not run out of fuel. Right. But he didn't think about anything else. That's right. He was like, he was last attempt and we have to go or run out of fuel like ALM 980. But he didn't think hey, we should not land if we're that fast. Right. Yeah, it could happen today. CRM is better today. So, you know, this was 1977. We said that CRM was developed in 1978. It empowers all the crew members to kind of have a more equal voice. But this can and does happen. 
Yeah. And I mean, I don't think CRM would have changed that. I think because it wasn't miscommunication. Right. It wasn't. Communication was clear. Everything was understood. He knew what he was dealing with. Yep. He decided. So I'll tell a quick story real quick. I I was flying with with another pilot recently, a first officer, and he was too fast. 25 knots too fast. And we get down to where we have to call if Mm -hmm. we're stable. That gate is plus 15 minus five, Mm -hmm. 500 feet. You look at your airspeed, you say plus 15 minus five on slope. We're in a position to land. Right. right? And if you are, you're stable. Well, we were plus 25. I said 500 feet. He said stable. No. And I looked at him and I said, unstable, go around. So we went around. We came back and we landed and we had to talk about it. And I said, hey, you cannot do that. You know the gate. And he said, well, I was slowing down. I said, no, no. That's the last chance you have to be in the gate. There is no slowing after that. That is it. You're done after that. Right. And that just put me in mind of this. And I went, that's why this can happen again. Yeah. Because the pilot says, oh, I can make this. Right. He's got that ego and he says, I can make this. Oh, no, I'm still slowing down. It's going to be fine. It's like, but you have to take into account the fact that you are, you have passengers in this plane. Right. It's a heavy aircraft. Like there's... There are these rules and... Very specific procedures. Yes, for a reason. It's not to take away the font. Like, it's for safety. It's so that we all survive and land safely and get to our loved ones and go home or go on holiday and do what we're supposed to do. So the last one that we did, it's encouraging. I know it was a lot of people died. It was encouraging because so much came out of it. We really learned just, I mean, a huge mass of knowledge. This one... These, when I do these, I'm sort of almost in a way disheartened because these are the kinds of ones where I go, we didn't learn anything. Right. It was one person's error yep. and one person's decision. It's Absolutely. not the aircraft malfunctioned. It's not all of a it's series not all of those events. It's little series of. No. Yeah. It's so. one decision. This is a movie plot. This is a, this is a better movie plot. That's right. <laughs> this is what Hollywood wants. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to read my sources. Let's do it. The original report from the Portuguese Aviation Authority translated, obviously, to English. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wikipedia, where I read and I over, an overview, I get our sources from there. Airsafety.com, airsafety.net, and an article from admiralcloudberg.medium.com. And that was my sources. Great. This one was a little less intense than the last one. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, but a little story from my end yeah, before please. we wrap up. I've actually flown a plane before. Oh. Yes. Uh, my sister's godmother, her husband has a little plane. Um, they call it Tweety. <laughs> it's a small two-seater uh-huh. with a propeller yep. in the front. I don't know what kind of plane it is, but I can find a picture for you. Oh, I'd love it. Yes. Yeah, send it to and me. And with me in it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I want to see that too. Um, and I remember when I flew it, we flew out of Jersey, which is where they keep it, mm-hmm. where the hangar is. Mm-hmm. He asked if I wanted to land the plane. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, I don't want to die today, <laughs> but thank you. So I did take it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I had assistance the whole time. Oh, course, so at yeah. no point was it dangerous right but it was so much fun i loved it i'm glad that every you, moment that i'm actually glad that you shared that that was awesome mm-hmm. yeah. that was cool <laughs> air aviation is accessible to a lot of people that they and they don't quite understand how accessible it is yeah you know if you wanted to spend two hundred thousand dollars on a college education you could spend eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars on an education and become an airline pilot or or, or corporate pilot you could become that as a career mm-hmm. with less than a hundred thousand dollars so yeah it is accessible people just don't understand yeah so a couple friends of mine one is a boy I went to school with for a very long time he's a pilot the other one's a family friend 
He's also a pilot. He's flying for Iberia now. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. He loves it. I, I mean, I fly. I love it too. Yeah. So I think it's awesome that you got that opportunity. And mm-hmm. if you ever have the opportunity to fly more, you should become a licensed pilot it's fantastic yeah i'd love to well inez thank you so much for being on again i so appreciate it i hope you enjoyed the stories and we will do it again sometime yes i'd love to thank you so much for having me yep and until next time